Welcome from the Nebraska-Kansas conference. I was in Nebraska and uh, Kansas last weekend, and I did uh, like nine or ten talks out there. But on Wednesday night, I was talking to the main worship meeting, anywhere from 500 to 800 people or more there. I can't remember. The sanctuary out there at Lincoln was quite large. And and halfway through my talk, about 20 minutes into my talk, uh, off to the left, back corner, I hear this this noise. Like there's this tone. I'm going... Man, that is quite irritating. Wish somebody would turn that off. I'm thinking, like, I'm doing my program. And then two or three people get up and leave, and I look at the audience, and it dawns on me. I go, is that a tornado siren? And the whole audience goes, yes! And so we had to stop my program. Everybody had to go down underneath to the tornado shelters for uh, 20 minutes, and, and then we, we had to come back up to, to finish my, my program. First time in, in all my speaking that I've had to be interrupted for a tornado. And they said, first time in all the times they remember being at Lincoln that they've ever had a speaker interrupted for a tornado. So when I came back up, I told them, I guess it's okay that I'm going to be long-winded now, right? So... <laughs> anyway, but it, it, went, it went really well. Things went really well. There are a lot of positive response to this message that you guys and we talk about here every week. Very enthusiastic response across the, the love. I got to speak to the pastors one morning, the entire pastors for all the conference. And, uh, and I presented some of the concepts to them, and it was very, very well received. So I'm very excited about the, the options. In fact, I've already got a, other invitations to go to, to churches to do seminars now from, from that. And, that just means I'm away from here more, so you guys will will support support that, right, as the message goes forward. <laughs> Let's begin with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for an opportunity to come together and study your word today. Send your spirit to be with us and your angels to join us as we fellowship and worship that we might come to, to see you more clearly. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Got an email uh, this past week from uh, one of our online listeners, Larice Gray, and she wanted me to extend to everyone her appreciation for how much the class means to her and how much it's helped her come to see God. In a, and she puts a, a less fearful way, and, uh, and she just wants us to continue on. And she actually expressed some anxieties about the idea. It just struck her one day, what would I do if this class wasn't available? <laughs> and uh, she expressed that, so she wants to affirm us and affirm our, our, the ministry we're doing. We are doing in our lesson today, the, the final lesson in our quarterly, The Wonder of Jesus, and the title of the lesson today is called, His Return as King and Friend. Any thoughts or questions or things that came to your mind about Christ's return that you would like to explore today? Yes. Well, something that comes to mind is, yes. They, they dealt a bit with the fear factor. The fear factor? Yeah. Yeah, we, I've got that right in my nose. And, and I thought they missed a few things. I mean, Jesus talked about... And First John, perfect love casts out all fear. Yeah, so maybe we should mention that as we go along. Somebody read Sabbath's text for us, please, the memory text. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Not to deal with sin. Did you notice that phrase? He's coming again, not to deal with sin, but to save. What do you think it means to deal with sin? And why is he not going to deal with sin when he comes? So what does it mean to deal with sin? Because don't we have the, the preachers telling us all the time he's coming back to punish sin? Isn't that what it's often taught? I mean, I hear it quite regularly in this community. The fire's got to rain down from God to punish sin at his coming. 
Well, it's like eradicate sin, really. This is kind of a final eradication of sin from the universe, of people who, in whose sin is living. But it says here he's not coming back to deal with it. So what do you think it means to deal with it? Yes. Will he deal with it then? Well, that's, a, that's what we're asking. In dealing with it, he provided the remedy. Oh, did you hear that, everyone? She said in dealing with it, he provided the remedy. He, he provided the cure. Imagine if instead of we use the word sin, we use the word Ebola. He's not coming back to deal with Ebola. He did that his first time. And a terminal illness. He's not coming back to deal with cancer. He already did that. He confronted it. He overcame it. He cured it. He has a remedy. It's available. He's not coming back to cure the disease. He's already cured it. What he's coming back is to take all those people home who's accepted the cure, who's accepted the remedy. That's already passed. Yeah. And why doesn't he cure the others? They don't want to be exactly. So the remedy is available. Think about it in a medical model. Do we force treatments upon sentient adults? Or do they have the freedom to reject it, even if they die? Don't they have the freedom to make that choice? Yes, they do. And I, you've heard me tell the stories in here of patients in the past who we've sadly let die because they refused treatment. They just absolutely wouldn't accept it. We begged, we pleaded, we, we prodded, we encouraged, we explained, we educated. But if they insist on refusing the treatment, what's the only thing you could do? Let them go. Let them go. And so he brings home with him all those who've accepted, and he sadly lets go all those who won't let him heal them. Yeah. Um, read the second paragraph there in Sabbath's lesson for us. It starts, though unpleasant. Though unpleasant elements are associated with the second coming, as we will see, it is not the fear factor that will cause people to turn their eyes towards heaven. Fear is important, and we do not proclaim the whole truth about the Advent without including it. But in doing so, we are to stick with what the scriptures explicitly say and not present anxiety-provoking nightmares of our making to give the various aspects of the Advent, to give the same aspects of the Advent, the same emphasis they receive in Scripture is to create in the hearts of those who care to listen something akin to the anticipation of children yearning for Christmas. I think there's a lot of truth in this paragraph. Did you notice it said that uh, we're, people are not going to be turning their eyes to heaven because of a fear factor? Do you all think that's true? How much preaching is based on fear? If you don't accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're going to burn. God's required when He comes back to punish sin. If you don't get your sins erased, if you don't get your sins forgiven now, God will require it at that time. There will be a time when the intercessor steps out of His role, the heavenly sanctuary, and you will have to stand before a wrathful and angry God without an intercessor. I mean, how much preaching do we do based on fear? Yet there's some awareness that fear is not going to be the reason people are going to be looking to heaven. Fear will be the reason people are asking the rocks and trees to fall. Yes, I don't know if you heard that. Fear will be the reason people are asking the rocks and the mountains and all to fall on them and hide them from the face of him who sits on the throne. Exactly, because they're afraid of him. Is there a need to be afraid of Jesus? No. Is there a need to be afraid of the Father? No. Did I hear a yes anywhere? No, okay, all no's, good. Yeah, I thought I heard a yes. I was like, oh, man, wow, okay. No, Jesus said, if you see me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. No need to be afraid of... Is there a need to be afraid of sin? Yes. 
Yeah, see, that's what we fear. We should fear the disease. Like, is there a need to be afraid of a loving, caring, gracious physician? Is there a need to be afraid of cancer? You see, there's a, there's a difference. The cancer is what kills, not the physician. Christ is our heavenly physician. You said there's a need to be afraid of sin. Yes. If sin is an attitude and a, um, a thought process, then what do you mean by being afraid of it? We're afraid of ourselves and what we might do under certain circumstances if we don't hang on to Jesus. I would say... Are we afraid of a disease that already has a cure? Well, no, afraid of, afraid of holding to it, afraid of participating in it, afraid of, of bringing it into our characters and, and, and valuing it. Because what will sin do to us if we hold to it? So this, it's, a, it's, it's a destructive, disease, painful process. Yeah, but I don't think fear is ever a good motivator for anything. Well, God used it a lot. Not long-term. Maybe short-term. You know, uh, I, I put this on my blog a few weeks ago. Anybody, anybody ever read my blog? <laughs> Did you read the blog, uh, Fear is for Children, a few weeks ago? Um, I had... Uh, uh, some of you didn't, so I'll tell you what was on there. I have a young adolescent male in my office who was, uh, you know, raging hormones and uh, getting sexually active around town. And, and, we, and I tried to reason with him. And I tried to share with him godly principles. And I tried to share with him the basis for an abstinent lifestyle and marriage and so forth and so on. Um, but it became clear to me um, his prefrontal cortex was not engaging. He was not reasoning. He was not comprehending. He, he was all about gratification of the pleasures. And so at that point, I realized we needed to do a different tack to meet him where he was in his maturity level. So I started talking to him about sexually transmitted diseases. And I brought out some pictures, and I showed him pictures of what happens in sexually transmitted diseases and scenarios where you could pick those up. And, and you could see the fear level rising in him. And he was getting uncomfortable. And, and based on fear, he finally said, but now I just can't go pick anybody up. Exactly. <laughs> fear is for children. There is a place that fear, I think, is appropriate, only because of the immaturity level of the people involved. But ultimately, fear, it, it, and this is why you see God thundering in, in, in the Old Testament frequently, thundering, 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 because they are so mature. And it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You know, this is not the end of wisdom. See, if you're raging in an orgy around a golden calf at the foot of Sinai, and God thunders, and to get you to stop the orgy, stop worshiping a golden calf, and to begin listening to the source of the thunder, then wisdom has begun. But it's not the end of wisdom. And as you walk with God, you'll discover, as Moses did at Sinai, as he said at Exodus 20, there's no need to be afraid. And so ultimately, you're right, fear is not the end. Fear is part of the infection of sin itself. And we don't need to be fear-motivated, but in our sickness... There is a place that fear can be appropriate to get people to stop for a brief time to start listening, to learn a healthier way. Yes? For me, the only really appropriate fear is the fear of consumption. Because sometimes I just think, well, I know enough. And, you know, I don't give it the thought that I should. You know. And that's... Well, Winston Churchill said there's nothing to fear except fear itself. And I think ultimately when we come to understand what sin is, we don't... I don't know if fear is the right thing, but we certainly should dread. Well, dread. Michael just, Michael just uh, <laughs> shared with me about consequences, you know. So if you didn't file your taxes every year and you knew there weren't any consequences, most of us probably wouldn't do it if we knew there weren't any consequences. 
But ultimately, mm -hmm. if you have anybody trying to change their behaviors or their health behaviors, such as sexual um, behaviors or smoking or you know weight loss or whatever, fear is not the ultimate. But you know, I said to him, ultimately, you want to get to a point where you um, do it because you know it's right. Exactly right. Exactly right. And that's why I said fear is for children. The, the sexually transmitted disease with this young adolescent uh, may hopefully cause him to restrain himself for a, a, a period of time, allowing his prefrontal cortex to develop enough that he be, begins to be able to reason and think and see some higher, better motives, and he moves away from fear and says, hey, this is really a healthier way to live. I mean, that, that would be the goal, wouldn't it? Yeah. Same thing with all of our actions. Why, uh, as a, Gossip or stealing or... Exactly. Three levels of obedience. Why do children do most of the things they do as kids? Fear of punishment. And then they grow to a point where they, don't want, they actually come to love their parents and they want to please them. So they, they move from fear of punishment to, I, want, I, want, I don't want to hurt my mommy and I don't want to hurt my daddy. But then hopefully they grow up to the point they actually do it because things make sense, it's reasonable, and it's just the right thing to do because it's evidence-based, truth-based, reason-based. And that's that level that I think you're, you're pointing us to. And that is the level that God wants us to grow to. No question about it. Um, it says in there, though, that the last sentence in the day, it says, the message of the second company should be good news, not something that sends people looking for anxiety therapies. Why are people afraid of the second coming? <clears throat> Okay. The, one, they won't be ready. Is there any other reason why besides they won't be ready? Say that louder. Afraid of God. And you said? Okay, so the events leading up to his actual appearing. They're afraid of all those traumatic things, losing houses, being in prison, calling before. Okay, so the events, uh, they're not ready and then afraid of God. I think that's true. I think that's true. I think those are actually... What can we do to help people deal with those types of fears? Tell them the truth. Tell them the truth about? What about God? I, had a, I have a, actually a young lady who's struggling with terrible ruminations and fears about the lake of fire. Terrified of the lake of fire. And uh, so I had her read three of my blogs, The Question of Punishment 1, 2, and 3. And she, it, it, it's totally foreign totally foreign. It's like the idea has never crossed her mind that the fire could be the fire of God's glory, that the fire could be the fire of God's life-giving glory that transforms and heals as Moses' face was radiating. He comes down off the mountain, this fire, but the children of Israel in agony, and it's a fire of truth and love that, that we, we document through the scriptures there. It's like totally blowing her mind that this could be, because she thinks of the fire of combustion. She thinks of the fire that, that will burn flesh. And so, presenting truth about God, but also truth about some of these things in the Bible are important, too. And where the, where the fire takes place, Revelation chapter 14 tells us where the fire takes place. In the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. Yes? Most people are really afraid of change for one reason or another. And if, I think if we can make this appear to be changed for the right reason or a good reason, then that helps the process. When Jesus comes back, didn't he say he'll be sitting at the right hand of the Father? Does it make a difference to think about Jesus coming as, by himself with the angels or Jesus coming with the Father and the angels? Does it make any difference at all to you? 
Do you think it makes difference to some people? Yes. And isn't that sad if it does? Yes. Do you think that what Christ is waiting for, what do you think Christ is waiting for for the second coming? Do you think partially he's waiting for people to get over that fear, that disparity that might exist in the mind between God the Father and God the Son? That we can see the Father with just as much trust, just as much confidence, just as much love, just as much certainty, just as much security as we see the Son. Do you think he's waiting for that? Yes. John, do you have your hand up? No, okay. Let's, uh, let's, well, let's, with that in mind, let's read Jesus' prayer right before his crucifixion. John 17, 20-26. And it says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will be with me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them glory that you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. In them, I in them, and you in me. May they be brought into complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given to me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. What do you take away from that prayer? What is Christ praying for? That we'll see the truth about God. Say that. At one minute. How do we say that today? When you think of atonement, do you think of this prayer? When, when somebody says, you know, Christ, you know, came to achieve atonement, do you immediately think of this prayer? Should we think of this prayer? Yeah. He's wanting us to bring into unity, into oneness. Unified just as Christ and the Father are unified. Would this require that we come to the truth about God as well as the truth about Christ? Yeah. And Jesus said he wants to see his glory in us. What is his glory? Character. His character. Yeah. We should not see that as an obligation, but as a privilege. Would I present him? And is the character of Jesus the same as the character of the Father? Yes. Then can we be presenting them in diametrically opposed ways? The Son loving and gracious, pleading to a Father who must, in order to be just, pour out wrath, anger, and fire. <clears throat> is it possible this is what Christ is waiting for, for us to truly come to this unity with them in heart and mind? It said in the first paragraph that we read that we shouldn't have anxiety-provoking nightmares in our presentation. Do we as a church ever present God in ways that in- cause anxiety-provoking nightmares? I see some heads nodding. Any- anybody care to share? Our evangelistic series. An evangelistic series? Any specifics anybody want to share? Pale horse. Pardon? The pale horse riding death. Yeah. All right, well, let's go to Sunday's lesson then. Uh, somebody read the second paragraph. Since 1844, Christ has been engaged in a phase of ministry prefigured by the Day of Atonement in Israel. When that work is done, he will emerge from the heavenly sanctuary to receive his people. 
In the words of Hebrews 9.28, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of men, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eating have you ever been confused about the whole sanctuary message, message thing? Yeah. And since 1844, one phase to another phase, what do you actually think has been going on? What has Christ been doing since 1844? And where is the work taking place? Why did 1844 have to, or what seems really bad for God's doing that? Are you asking where the date comes from? Yeah, like what's the Daniel 814, until 2300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And then Daniel 9 tells us from the uh, time that the decree goes forth to rebuild and restore Jerusalem till the, uh, the 70 weeks cut off for your people, uh, shall be 70 weeks cut off from your people. And the, it's a portion of that larger time period. So 18, uh, the 2300 year started in 457 B.C. and it clocks out to 1844. That's where we get the date. Pardon? Did I go too fast? Uh, Xerxes put the decree, there was actually a decree for earlier, but the decree Xerxes gave in 457 B.C. was to actually give them governing authority again, not just to rebuild, but governing authority, so restore and rebuild. That's why the 457 B.C. date is used. My question is, are, did God's actions change from the beginning until 844? Was he doing something different then than he is now? That question I'm going to ask after we just get down a little bit. I've got this question um, in the notes that says... Why 1844? Right there. Well, let's, let's, do a little pre, let's lay, lay a little groundwork first. What's he been doing? What's been going on? Since 1844. Since 1844. Ministering being our high priest in heaven. Ministering being our high priest in heaven. Okay. Does anybody, uh, does, that, does that make it clear to everybody? No. <laughs> no. Yes. We're in the temple of uh, God, and he's trying to change our minds. Oh, I like that very much. We are the temple of God, and he's trying to change our minds. With, with the cleansing of the temple, 2,300 days, and, and then the sanctuary should be cleansed, does that actually have to do something with cleansing the spirit temple, cleansing our hearts and minds? Is that how you traditionally think? He's well, ministering in the most holy place. Yes, and uh, see, Russell says he's ministering in the most holy place, and he's pointing right here to his forehead. Well, this is out of great controversy, uh, written by a lady who was involved in establishing this entire heavenly sanctuary doctrine. And this is what she says. It says, The coming of Christ as our high priest to the most holy place for the cleansing of the sanctuary brought to view in Daniel 8.14, 2300 days in the sanctuary should be cleansed. Uh, the coming of the Son of Man to the Ancient of Days as presented in Daniel 7.13, which is the books are opened text, and the coming of the Lord to his temple foretold in Malachi 3, 1 through 3 are descriptions of the same event. Okay, same event. Now that's cool if, we have, if they're all the same event because we can learn things about the same event. Then let's particularly look at the Malachi 3, 1 through 3. And it says, see, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. There we are. He's coming to his temple. The messengers of the covenant you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. What does a refiner's fire and launderer's soap do? Purify. Cleanses, purifies. But notice verse 3 now. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and make them like gold and silver. Wait a minute. Who are the Levites? Yes, the priesthood of believers. The Levites were the members of the of the sanctuary system, or the Old Testament system that took care of the temple. They were the, the priests and those who involved in that hood, the, the Levitical priesthood. So he is coming to cleanse, according to the scripture, 
the Levites. And who would today be the Levites? Peter says that, don't you know that you are the priesthood of believers? You have a temple and, and you are a priesthood of believers. He's coming to cleanse us. Is that how you typically hear the 1844 message? That 2300 days and then God will cleanse his people? Yes.
Uh, you'd have to do the mass. You have to do all these things. All this, uh, uh, all this system of works were based on this. And then Christ is up there. Mary's up there. The saints are up there, all pleading to the Father because he needs to be worked on. Protestantism, when the Reformation started, realized the priesthood of believers and uh, and salvation by by faith and trust, not by a system of works. Wonderful first step forward out of darkness. But my understanding is so far is the next step, maybe the final step to finish the Reformation, is to purge out of our thinking the disparity between the Godhead, where we have one member of the Godhead, Christ, who died to plead to his Father on our behalf, to persuade him, to appease him, to assuage his wrath, to, to take away his anger, to, to pay a legal debt in order for the Father to be enabled, to be capable, to be persuaded, to somehow be transformed to be a loving and forgiving God. That is paganism. And that is, I think, a remnant of our, our, uh, the pagan history from Catholicism, still brought out of Protestantism, still infects every Protestant church. And that root, I think, is what was waiting to be purged out of our thinking, that we see that God had unified, as the Bible teaches, if God is for you, who can be against you? He who did not spare his son but gave him up, how will he not also with him give us all things? It is God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus. He is at the Father's hand, right hand and is also interceding for us, in addition to the Father. Second uh, Corinthians 5.19, God was in the Son reconciling the world to himself. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. I mean, the Bible is clear. God has always been on our side. He never needs to be persuaded to be on our side. We are the ones who need to be persuaded to be on his side. And so this remnant of paganism, which was, I thought, reinfected very strongly into our church in the 1950s with this book, Doctrine and Covenants, is right where we're at now. We're battling to purge it out of our church. There was another wave of it to hit in the 1970s when a bunch of evangelical theologians converted to Adventism and became teachers at our seminary at Andrews. And they accepted the doctrine on Sabbath, they accepted the state of the dead, they accepted the second coming, they accepted sanctuary in heaven, and all these doctrines they accepted. But at the root of it, they still held to the pagan and, and, and Reformation theology that Jesus died to pay debts to appease the angry wrath of the Father. And that came over into our, uh, into our seminary, and a whole generation of pastors were taught this type of theology. Uh, in that 1970s, there was a group of, of Adventist seminary professors that went to the president of the General Conference and tried to dissuade him from allowing them these uh, converted evangelical professors to enter our seminary and teach, but uh, they were denied that recommendation. And so this is what happened. And so now we are, I think, at this, at this place again where the Holy Spirit is being poured out. We're having an opportunity. The Son of Righteousness is rising with healing in His wings. We have an opportunity to free our hearts and minds from this, these, these distortions about God, that God is wanting to heal, restore His character in us, finish the work that Christ can come again. I think it's another turning of the tide. Yes? similar movement in the early 1820s and 30s that affected all Protestant churches, similar to what we in our church teach about the temple being cleansed and Christ in our hearts and through the work of grace that is an ongoing work of grace, you know, not a one-time thing. And that was part of what got rejected by the mainstream Protestant churches at the time of the And maybe that was the Babylon has fallen has fallen. It's very interesting. I, I've just done my own reading on that, but it's very, very interesting. Interesting, I was reading a great controversy this morning, and she says that the second angel's message, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, is to be given again. That message was given in 1844, Babylon has fallen, but she said it's to be given again before the second coming of Christ. Babylon has fallen, has fallen. And uh, it's very interesting. They did have the truth about salvation. It, it, it was widespread, but not accepted by anyone denomination. Yeah, yeah, interesting stuff. So, here we find ourselves then talking about Christ in heaven cleansing the sanctuary, cleansing his people. It says in Malachi text, cleansing the Levites. Can God cleanse the record books in heaven? 
of the recorded sins of the people, which has often been presented. Has anybody besides me ever heard that presented, that in heaven there's a record searching going on, and those who've asked for forgiveness have their records cleansed? Has anybody heard that? Yeah. Can God cleanse record books of sinners in heaven without cleansing the hearts and minds of those sinners? No, it's not possible. And so the way the record books in heaven get cleansed are actually by cleansing the hearts and minds of the people, transforming us. And you've heard my analogy before about the leukemia. And I'll just say it again because there's a couple of people in here who haven't heard it, like one of you. And, uh, <laughs> but I'll say it again because it makes so much sense to me anyway. But your child is dying of leukemia and, you, and, you, and everybody's told them it's fatal. But you hear of a doctor who, who, when you go to this doctor, everybody leaves with a clean bill of health. And so you take your child with the medical records documenting all the records of disease. And, and you go in to see the doctor. You finally get your day and you hand him the records documenting all the sickness, all the grotesque stuff that the disease is doing to your child. And the doctor takes the records, pulls out all the records of disease, sticks in blank white sheets of paper, hands it back and says, here, now, more, now no more record of disease. Are you happy if your child's dying with leukemia? No. This is kind of the idea that he's in heaven cleansing books. But what happens is the doctor looks at the records, leaves the records as they are, goes over to your child, and intervenes with a treatment that cures and heals your child. Now, the records show the disease, the records show the remedy applied, and the records show your child is now cancer-free. That's how he's cleansing the record books in heaven, by cleansing the people on earth, the, the Levites. He's coming as a refiner to cleanse us. And as we're cleansed... I believe that, though, because we have that legal system where the judge says, okay, now you're acquitted, or now, now you have to go to jail, or, you know, whatever it is. And it has nothing to do whether that person is safe for society. Right? It doesn't seem to me anyway. Well, yeah, forgiveness without transformation is meaningless. Anybody remember Jeffrey Dahmer? cut up people's bodies and serial killer cut him up put him in his fridge if he were still alive and president bush legally pardoned him forgave him set him free how many want him as their neighbor well he's pardoned he's forgiven you see forgiveness from god without transformation is meaningless it doesn't do any good for us another example miriam in the old testament uh, she was actually criticizing Moses for leadership because he married an Ethiopian woman, if you remember. She's struck with leprosy. Leprosy is a metaphor in the system, in the, in the enactment, in the play, in the drama. Met leprosy is a metaphor for sin. So now, because you're leprous, where do you have to reside? In the camp or out of the camp? Okay, Outside the camp, because you're a sinner. You can't be part of the camp. Now, Moses intercedes for her, prays for her. And if God says, okay, I legally forgive you. But he doesn't cleanse her leprosy. Is she still part of the camp? Is she still out of the camp? No. Forgiveness without cleansing doesn't do any good. So what, what, what did God do? Is God healed her. No more leprosy. She's restored. She's regenerated, recreated. That's the plan of salvation. Ken. I think at the root of the problem with this discussion is that we, we somehow all accept that we have the same revulsion against sin or that we have... The, that sin is, is universally regarded as unacceptable, totally unacceptable. But the fact of the matter is that if you don't regard sin as something that has to be removed or that, you know, it's, it's well enough to find that God really knows what it is in you, then it doesn't matter whether he says, you know, you're, you're cleansed or not, except that it's a legal thing. You know what I'm saying? In other words, it's, it's a... 
If, if, you have, if you've been smoking and your doctor told you for years, don't smoke, and now you've got cancer and you go to your doctor and you say, Doctor, I'm so sorry, I didn't listen to you, I should have not smoked, and your doctor says, that's okay, I forgive you. Does that do you any good? No. You need healing. This is our problem. We need healing. And unfortunately, Satan has tricked us into thinking all we need is, is legal pardon. What, so what temple is God working to cleanse? And maybe I should ask this question. The heavenly sanctuary. What is it constructed out of? You can't open that <laughs> Well, as you think about that, the Bible teaches that heaven is God's throne and earth is his footstool. footstool. Does that have any insight on giving us clues about the heavenly sanctuary? Do we think of the heavenly sanctuary as a little tiny building with smoke and incense, uh, but maybe, you know, a hundred times as big as the one on earth, a thousand times as big. We see a little rooms up there that Jesus is in. Or do we remember heaven uh, is his throne, earth is his footstool. Uh, does that give us a clue to maybe where we're going? Are hmm. we told that we are pillars in the sanctuary? Revelation says we're, it actually says we are pillars. You are, you are a pillar in the temple of God and never will you leave it. You mean we're going to be locked in that little building in heaven for all eternity? That's prison. We're solid in the truth. Solid in the truth. Or Peter says you are living stones. That the Apostle Paul says that the the church is built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ with the apostles, uh, the cornerstone being Jesus Christ, the apostles being the foundation. Hmm. Well, is that giving us some insight? In the Old Testament sanctuary service, what does the covenant box represent? The covenant box. The promises of God. Hmm. Let's let's put it together because we have a we have a um, where where was the covenant box? Where was the covenant box kept? Most holy place. Okay, so the Shekinah represents God's presence. The angels represent heavenly beings. Okay, the lid represents the lid actually represents Jesus, the gold, solid gold, the hilasterion. Lid represents Jesus. The box itself. Oh, this is so cool. <laughs> the converted hearts of us. I'm going to show you why. What was in it? What was in the box? Manna, the law, Eridron that budded. So in the New Testament, so in the old, old Covenant, there was manna in there. In the New Testament, what did Jesus say the manna was and where was it to go? There you go. Jesus said, I am the bread that has come down from heaven. Me. I'm the one. I'm the bread that came down. Moses gave you manna in the desert, but I'm the bread of life that has come down. And you, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. So where is he saying it's supposed to be placed? In, in whom, though? In us, right? So in the Old Testament, it's in the box. In the New Testament, Jesus is saying it goes in us. What about in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments were kept where? In the box. Hebrews 8.10 says, In the New Covenant I will write my law where? Oh, in the heart and mind. Wait a minute. So when the Old Testament's in the box, and the New Testament's heart and mind. Oh, this is very interesting. Um, now notice the order in which they came. There's a particular order that the things went in the box. What was the first thing that went in the box? No. Manna. Manna came before the law. Manna went in the box first. Now, Jesus is the bread of life. The truth. As we internalize Christ, it brings us, wins us back. As we see the truth about Christ, if we see him, as we appreciate it, we take him into the heart, doesn't that win us to trust? 
And as we open the heart to trust, then the new covenant experience occurs. The Holy Spirit is poured out and writes the law, which came next was the law. The law came next. And so the law, after we open the heart to trust, is written on the hearts and minds. Character transformation. And what was the third thing that went in? Aaron's rod that budded. Know ye not that ye are dead in your trespasses and sins. We are dead. We are that dead stick. But once we have been one to trust, taking the manna, once the Holy Spirit has written the law in the hearts and minds, then we who are dead in trespasses and sin become live to bring forth fruits of righteousness. We are dead sticks that blossom and bring forth fruit. And so the box represents us. And when you put it all together, what do you see in, the, in this is Christ is the one who connects the universe all back into unity. Remember the prayer we read, a prayer that everything will be one, because you and I are one. And so on the lid, which represents Christ, solid gold, we have the angelic host connected to the lid. We have the Shekinah glory connected to the lid. And we have the reconciled sinners, restored in righteousness, collected, connected to the lid. And everything in the universe is connected back into oneness through Jesus Christ. And thus we read Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times have reached their fulfillment. Times have reached their fulfillment. Think about prophetic times. To bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Jesus Christ. And then Colossians 1, 16 through 20. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Notice, heavenly things, earthly things, everything comes back into unity through what Christ has done at the cross. And I think it's really pretty cool. Beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. So I'll pause and take questions about that. I just kind of gave you the superficial overview. Really neat. Where'd you get that? Study? Looking at the evidences of Scripture, putting the pieces together? Yeah. But it's okay to ask questions, and if you disagree, that's okay too. Are you going to go back to the That's the very next thing on my note, right here. Thank you. Okay, so why 18... So if he's working to bring all things in unity, he's working to rate the law in the heart and mind, he's working to recreate us into Christ's likeness, why 1844? Right there. I have heard that like, God is spending time judging us after like 1844 is Yes, okay, so that's two questions. Why 1844, and then is God just? So let's do the why 1844 first. Anybody have a thought on why 1844? There's the traditional answer. The sovereign of the universe picked a date, Ali Ali in free, ready or not, here we go. That's not what happened. See? But why? The, he says prophetic timetable, same thing. It's a prophetic time, God decided in prophetic time, that's when the time ends, that's, that's it. It's absolutely amazing how many things started happening about that time. How many churches started, how spiritualism really kicked in, how a bunch of things all started right around that time. Printing, everything, we were able to actually open our books and read about that. Now, did God Second, that was going to happen ahead of time and tell us, yeah. this is what you look for, or did he intervene to make it happen so he'd be right? <laughs> Okay, all right. There's a lot of random thoughts going on. Let's go. Daniel was told to close up the visions in Daniel 7, 8, and 9 until the time of the end. 
the time of the end of the visions opened up of the end happening. Yeah, so 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4. See if this sheds light onto the question, why 1844? It says, this is Paul writing, concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we're talking about today, coming of the Lord. Concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him. We ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you think this has anything to do with why 1844? Absolutely. How do we put it together? Do you think God knew that after Christ came and, and confronted Satan on the battlefield planet Earth, that Christ took on the antagonistic powers of the devil's kingdom and overcame them with, with, the, with the law of love, perfect Christ-like character, defeating selfishness with love at every turn, wins the battle, destroys Satan and his government, basically, goes back to heaven. Do you think Satan, God knew Satan was going to counterattack with more lies, more distortions, more misrepresentations to deceive the minds of men about what Christ actually did? Did God know that was going to happen? And so what Paul's talking about is the counterattack. Don't you understand the man of sin, the man of rebellion is going to counterattack. He's going to deceive the minds of men. And notice, he's going to set himself up in God's temple. The man of sin. Who is the man of sin? The Antichrist. All of the, all of the above. All of the above. That's true. All of the above. Because Satan has agencies he works through. Okay? Did Satan, at that time... After Christ's ascension, after Christ has defeated him at the cross, after Christ's victory, after Christ said, now is the judgment of this world, now is the time for the prince of this world to be cast out. Did after all that happen, Satan go into heaven and throw God out of his temple and sit in the temple in heaven? No. So when it says he will exalt himself over everything that's called God and so that he sets himself up in God's temple, we are not talking the temple in heaven here. That is not the temple that he exalts himself and sets himself up in. And this is what is traditionally taught. We traditionally make it to be a, a temple in heaven when we say, well, they, they taught the Mass. And see, they taught the Mass and they perverted uh, the hearts and minds away from the heavenly temple. And so he threw God out of his temple in heaven. He did not throw God out of his temple in heaven. What he did is he did throw God out of the minds, the spirit temple, so that people didn't love, trust, and appreciate God as revealed in Jesus. They accepted a false God, a distortion God. And so he set himself up in the, in the spirit temple to, to where people believed that God was just like Satan. And thus, God knew this was going to happen. Why 1844? God, looking down through the quarters of time, knew that Christ was going to come, knew that Christ was going to reveal the truth, knew that Christ was going to win the victory, knew that Satan was going to counterattack, knew that lies were going to be told, knew that people would believe those lies knew that minds would be infected, knew that darkness was going to come, and knew that it was going to be 2,300 years from the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem before enough truth had been recovered to free the minds of people from the lies that had been told by the beast and the beast system and, the, and Satan and the man of sin. And a whole confluence of events occurred in the 1800s. Truth was being recovered through the Protestant Reformation. But not only that, the printing press and the ability to distribute the Bible in mass waves in the language that people could speak, all coming about that time, so that, that truth was opening, and truth destroys lies. And it's only God, and the Holy Spirit is the spirit of 
truth. And the only way to cleanse this temple from lies is to have the truth and the light of truth shine in. And so 2300, 1844, because that was the time God knew when enough truth would be recovered that the work could finally be done and the man of sin could be exposed and the temple, the spirit temple, the hearts and minds of believers could be freed from the distortions and misrepresentations of God. And that's what he'd been waiting for. But just like he did after Christ's victory in 2,000 years ago, once this message started to take hold, there was another counterattack. And we just talked about that counterattack a few minutes ago that has derailed this process and delayed it a little bit. But ultimately, he's not going to win because the truth is still unfolding. Questions about that? That answer your question? Good, good. Yes, and the second one was? Judgment. I heard that after 1844, God's in heaven judging us. Where do people get that idea? First angel's message. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of? His judgment has come, which can mean the hour that he sits and judges, or it can mean the hour that he has entered into judgment, the hour that he is being judged. Which do you think it is? He's up there judging us, or that he, enough truth has been recovered that he finally says, okay, make a decision. Can you trust me or can you not trust me? And as you choose whether God, as you judge whether God is trustworthy, or you judge whether God is untrustworthy, will that make a difference in where you end up? Now, there's other biblical support for that. Uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 4. God, may you win your case when you take it into court. That's a Phillips translation. God, may you be proved right in all that you do. That's another translation. But God, may you be justified when you judge. These are different translations, same thing. But God, you're the one who's been alleged to be the one we can't trust. May you be shown to be right. That's the meaning of the text. And that is coming to bear right now. Can we trust him? Is the evidence in? Have you seen enough evidence to know that everything that Satan has said about God is false? Amen. Yes. Revelation 7, 1 through 3 tells us that God sends an angel at the end of time to the four angels holding back the four winds. Hold, hold, hold until... The servants of God, his people, are sealed in their fort. You want to know why the second coming hasn't come? If you want to know what you can do to help the second coming come... Number one, get sealed. What is sealing? Be so settled into the truth intellectually and spiritually so that you cannot be moved. Intellectual means you comprehend, you understand, you appreciate God's character. You understand the issues in the great controversy. You understand the purpose of the creation of the world. You understand the fall of man. You understand the plan of salvation. You understand. You have understanding intellectually. Spiritually, your character has been transformed to be like Christ, that you love others more than yourself. These are they, Revelation chapter 12, these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. They're spiritually settled into the truth about God's character and kingdom, that they love others more than self. That is the sealing. Sealing intellectually and spiritually. And Christ is waiting for his people to be sealed. Because once the people are sealed, if you notice what happens, the four angels do something. They let go. And when the four angels let go, what happens? The winds of strife begin to blow. Evil men, evil people begin to tear this world to shreds. God knows we can't handle that if we're not settled, if we're not sealed. And so he holds, 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 giving us time to settle into the truth intellectually and spiritually so that when he comes, number one, we can handle the troubles, and number two, we will see him face to face and and be able to stand in the presence of his life-giving glory. Yes? Many people are very fearful about that occurrence and that is where the, the statement Mrs. White comes from about my blood, my blood has nothing to do with 
legal transactions or a sacrifice or whatever. It has to do with um, Christ. And she's talking about the same event that you just read about in Revelation, where the four winds. And where Christ turns to his father and, and sees his followers unprepared and they hold the winds until his followers are sealed. But for, as you said, fully settled. So that's nothing to do with a legal sacrifice or have, ever, have any of you ever had ideas in your mind that there's uh, one member of the Godhead pleading to another? Do you ever remember in uh, some of Ellen White's writings, in the early writings, where she talked about at the very beginning when man fell into sin, it was not easy for the father to let his son go, that the son pleaded with his father, and the father, it was, it was hard. You remember those statements, anybody? And you, and you get the picture in your mind, ooh, Jesus wanted to come save us, but the father kind of really didn't want to let him, let him, let him come save us. Isn't that kind of implied? You kind of read that? That's because that's our filters. No, parents, think about this. You have a child who is going to go on a suicide mission. A suicide mission. Would it be easy for you to let the child go? Or would you say, no, son, let me go. I'll go. You stay. Let me go on the mission. You see, and that was the discussion going amongst the Godhead. The father saying, no, son, I can't let you go. I'll go. The son says, no, father, you can't go. I'm going to go. No, fa- no son, let, let me go. And so there is this debate going back amongst the God, but it was never a debate, should we save them or should we not save them? The debate was, which one of us is going? And why was it that Christ won the debate? Because Lucifer didn't allege equality with, with uh, God, he alleged equality with Christ. And when Christ was put in his rightful place in heaven, Lucifer alleged Christ was a dictator and a power monger and couldn't be trusted to rule. And so Christ not only had to reveal the truth about himself as creator, that's why all things were created by Christ. He was the member of the Godhead through which all creation occurred because he had to demonstrate that he wasn't like Lucifer. He was supremely divine and preexistent and eternal. And this is why Christ came to reveal that he is the one who's trustworthy with the power. You remember in John 13, he says, when all power had been given to the Son, he knew all power had been given to him. What did he do? He got up, took a towel, got on his knees and washed feet. With all power in the universe, he washes feet of his betrayer. Whoa, can you trust somebody with power like that? And then on the cross, when they're crucifying all power, he could just blink them out of existence and blink the memory of them out of existence, but he doesn't. Can you trust somebody with power who behaves like that? And so we see the evidences given forward to destroy the lies and the liar to set our minds free, to cleanse the temple, to win us back to trust and restore us in Christ's likeness. Yes? Please, my blood, my blood, because he is actually waiting for us to understand the shedding of his blood. Well, he's not pleading to the Father. He's pleading to you and me. Remember when he went back to heaven, he said, it's pleading for you that I leave, because if I don't leave, this comforter won't come. Now, when the comforter comes, he's not going to speak on his own. He's going to speak only what he hears. Who do you think the, the comforter is listening to? Whose words is the comforter communicating? Jesus' words. Jesus goes on to say, He will take what is mine and make it known to you. So when you read this text about Jesus pleading in heaven, His blood is blood, He's not pleading, My blood, my blood, Father. He's pleading, My blood, my blood, children. I died for you. I love you. Won't you let me heal you? Won't you let me save you? And the Holy Spirit is taking His pleadings and communicating His pleadings. The heart of Christ is being communicated to you via the work of the Holy Spirit. So He's in heaven pleading, but the Father, and it says, it often says, before the Father. Yes, 
Because the Father is the, the grand purview of it all. And I can see the Father sitting on his throne going, Yes, son, you're doing a great job. Plead stronger. Plead louder. Because 17 more over there in college jail just heard your voice through the Spirit and gave their heart to you. Keep pleading, son. Keep pleading. That's how I envision it. Does that not make sense? Because they're all together on our side working for us. And we have this pagan distortion that we read text, we filter it through the pagan distortion and put one member pleading to the other. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that we don't have to plead with you to be kind, to be gracious, to be merciful. We don't have to appease you. Your Son doesn't have to appease you. That while we were yet sinners, you sent your Son to heal, to save, to redeem. That you were in your Son reconciling us to the world. Lord, send your Spirit to take all the truths that Christ has achieved, all that is His, and make it known to us. Enlighten our minds. Purge through the darkness that we can see you more clearly. And then let us be settled into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually. That our characters be transformed that fears can be purged out, that love can be written in, that we can be prepared to see you when you come. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.